Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this week's podcast of Joanna and the Maestro. And we're going to take an interval. No, literally, I don't mean that. What I mean (laughs) is to say is that we're going to talk about intervals. I wanted to do this because I realised that intervals, by the meaning of notes on a piano or notes in music, two notes together can just make something so special in your heart. You can't work out why that is. There's a lovely piece at the very end of Elaine Page on Sunday, her sign-off, which is something that I think she sang from Sunset Boulevard, which is a perfect year. And they've orchestrated it at the end of her show, but it's a beautiful leap, and it somehow caught her heart enough for her to want it as her sign-off. Listen. Stevie, will you tell me, because you did long ago, tell me the thing that starts you off loving music, the two notes played together that caught you as a child. (laughs) What were they? Play them for me now. Well, I'm afraid I, I think I probably annoyed my sister and brother a great deal, and probably my parents, although they were kind enough not to object, because I got hooked on this interval. But that wasn't enough. <laughs> so I started fiddling around. I'm afraid what that... it, what in, is that a sixth? No, I can't no, tell you. What see, is that's it? a tenth. A tenth. So an octave is eight, so that's two over an octave. Yes. Now, if you play those two notes in the same octave, which is a third, it's, yeah. it, it's one of the, it's the critical interval for everything in a major key. Tell me. Which is a third. Now play the original one you played. John Barry loves the tenth. <laughs> I've told you this before, because you can always tell when he orchestrates something, he loves having uh, that bass register, which is so much richer as a tenth than just a third. Same notes, but separated by over an octave, the tenth. And he, he sticks another note into it, and it's normally both the trombones. You'll, you'll know exactly what I'm doing. And that's a very John Barry colour. He loves the tenth because it's got extra richness. Is this what makes everything to, everything to do with music appealing? Is the gaps between the notes? Well, you, you're talking about chords and then harmony because harmony results from 
playing several notes at once. And chords give extra depth. They'd say more about a melody than the melody would on its own. And you can put all sorts of harmonies underneath a common melody. Anybody can take a melody and harmonize it in a different way, which is quite often the case with jazz, for a different color. I'll give you an example of a very simple harmonic development. That's a French carol, and I'll now just add a few notes to it. Well, that sort of suddenly got kind of richer and a bit darker and a little bit, little bit spookier. <laughs> Spooky? Why did you say that? I don't know. Is that it what just you mean of, about, it Suddenly um, the first one seemed quite calming and the second one had a slight, that sense of slight unease when you no, bring in... Oh, no, 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 but I think that's unfair. It's not unease, is it? it no, it's it delicious. It makes it seem sweeter, richer. That's called adding harmonic interest. So you can have simplicity and you can have complexity by adding more notes that aren't so far removed, but just add character. If we're talking about chords there, so notes played together, but for instance, da-dee-dee-da-da-da, that's a third, it's a third, isn't it? That's a minor third. Yes, 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 yes. I was obviously going to say it was a minor third. But what I mean to say is that that would be different if you could play that piece for me, which is the New World Symphony, isn't it, by yeah, Dvorak? Dvorak. Could you play that to me in fourths? <laughs> well, no, just do. Just instead of choosing, instead of him choosing to you go You want Dudley Moore at the piano, really, <laughs> How's that? Well, how different that sounds, doesn't it? Suddenly it's sort Yeah, of a... but look, 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 you see, the third plays right into the hands of something very common in pop music, rock music, film music, called a hook. It's got such a good feeling of happiness, pleasantness, sweetness, lyricism. That's quite common. You wouldn't often find... You see, look, in, in musical terms, we've got names for these intervals. There's the devil's tritone. Oh, that's what I love. I love it already. And what does tritone mean? Well, that means that it's made up of three full tones. Shall we... Just go back a little bit. Yes, you? please do, okay. immediately. Because the octave, you, uh, don't ask me the history of this, because I, I, I failed in my musical education in that 
the history of things never really engaged me. But the octave is divided into a series of pitches, which are these. So that's seven different notes. And then back at the octave. And the intervals of those notes change, but in the main, they're tones. So that's, that's a whole tone, because in between is a semitone. So that's a tone. Then the next note up is, which is the third, with a note in between, which is the semitone. And I'll talk about major and minor in a minute. Then the next note is a semitone. And then a tone, a tone, a tone, a semitone. And don't ask me the history of that, but it's a way of formalising what pitches we generally use. Now, in India, for example, they use microtones, which are notes in between the notes that Western music chose as the basis. And then we have dissonant notes within that scale on the half tones in between those white notes, which makes something sound sadder because there's more dissonance in it. And so the difference between a major third and a minor third, that's a major third, and that's a minor third. So is a chord of C minor, and that's a chord of C major. So therein lies your whole adventure. That scale is repeated all the way up the range of every instrument. Octave means eight notes. So, yeah. well, I know you don't like history of music, but why eight? You, well, are, the, are there just eight? I mean, is, the, is that just a natural fact? No, you, no, because you could you could have put in mini tones in that. So an octave could actually be, you know, a quarantive or something. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd need it could have forty notes. four hands instead of exactly. two. Exactly, but that was the Western way of doing it. An octave was always well. Do you remember the harmonic sequence? Of course, I do. Was... Those are the natural notes that spring out of a pure sound. That's what defines colour and consonance and dissonance. So our system simply rationalised the octave into those seven notes. And then over the... I mean, it started off organum, which is the earliest accompaniment to melody, simply used fifths. And because there are four tones in between, or, or at least there are four, so that is a fifth and that is a fourth. So organum used a fifth and a fourth. And then they wanted to use other notes. So they brought other pitches into it. We can hear this very striking polyphonic growth in the music of Léonard and Perrotin, French composers from the 12th century who were part of the Notre Dame school.
But they were chosen originally as the basis for our harmony because they knew that there was Pythagorean science at work. They were divisible. We're going a bit dark here, aren't we? We're getting a little bit sort of... I'm up to my thighs in mud now <laughs> because it hasn't really helped me. Well, you were me talking about, about intervals. Yes, I know, because I didn't mean necessarily played as chords. What I meant was that sometimes an octave in music, and it's completely thrilling if somebody goes, ee, and up to the top, it's something is, woo, you go, woo, that's... I don't know why, it just makes your hair stand on end. Yes. And there's a song which I can't possibly sing someday, when which is a fifth. It goes, da, dee, la, da, dee, dee, dee. And there's something terribly pleasing about that fifth, dee, da, to start mm. a song. Mm. It seems to offer hope. It goes right up to it, eventually an octave, I think, which goes, dee, da, right. I won't do it because somebody else is going to sing it for us now. Billy Holiday is going to instead. It's the way you look tonight. The whole history of rock music is based on consonants. It's based on the Western format. The exciting thing for me is sometimes to hear music that has not one jot of similarity to the Western styles. So when you listen to a lot of Eastern singing, I, I, I include India and Indonesia and Japan, where they have totally different systems and they're not based on so much on the science of the harmonic sequence. Do you see what I, I mean? I do. You, for example... And I can't think why that is. Just a geographical distance that oh, has made people develop musically so differently? Yes, it's purely cultural. I've never, ever wanted to restrict my own musical understanding to the Western styles, although I'm obsessed with it and, you know, I'm a practitioner. But I'm fascinated, too, by all the different styles. What about the, you know, the Mongolian... Mongolian throat music. Yes, that, that you... Well, I, when, when we were travelling there, up in Ulaanbaatar, we met this group of people who sang the Mongolian throat music, which is a sort of head... It's a weird double sound they can begin to make, which kind of goes into... Anyway, of course, on television, I was made to try to do it. But the sound they make is unearthly, very beautiful, but it's not even like a human voice. It goes into a kind of beeping weirdness, a very strange sound, which sounds completely normal to Mongolians, just as yodeling sounds completely normal to the Swiss. Mm. And the beautiful sitar music, which we go, oh, that's India, sounds completely normal to Indians. And so this fascinates me that people around the world have developed such different sounds which please them, but they're only human beings like us. So is it all from how they were taught or what they expected yes, to hear? Yes, of course. Yes. Of course. Of and the course. music they heard? Because a lot of people, including, of course, the great George Harrison, was so influenced by Ravi Shankar's music yeah. that although all the Beatles heard it, it was George who invested in it so fully. And then a lot of his music involved Indian microtones, I guess, weren't they? That's right. And tabla too. Yes. Sitar and tabla. Yes. Because tabla speak you, when you see them, you what, see what these is a small what, drums. Tell me, it's a drum, yes. Small drums. And the players sit on their haunches. 
well, cross-legged, balancing the tabla on their knees. And I included a tabla in my opera, do you remember? Yes, Because King. to symbolise the soul of Beckett against others, to identify Beckett. And it's because tabla speak with the pitches, but the pitches are not determinate. They're not any particular note. They slip and slide. They can change the pitch, you know, do, and different parts of the have a, a different quality. Now, that's unrelated to pitches as we know it. And, of course, they improvise it. Tabla, all tabla players improvise. I had to write a line for the tabla in the score. It was blank throughout because it's always improvised. Quite extraordinary. If you have a query for me or the maestro, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch with us on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. And that's it. Now, back to the programme. You also visited that wonderful bell tower. Yes, in, that was in Siberia. Yes. In Irkutsk, I think. And there was a, a bellman up there who was a bit of a rock and roller. And it was almost the coldest day of the year I've ever been in. And it was in Siberia, and I was in an open bell tower with him. And he had all these bells, which the town absolutely adored him because he would once he, he didn't just go the ring of bells, which we would get used to, mm. church bells, as it were. Mm. He devised and improvised all the time. And he had all the bells there with their with their the ropes within it and within the throat with the with the, the metal knock on it so that he mm. could do that. And he played it like a harmonium, really, like a glass harmonium. He must have had what, grabbing, 18, 20 bells yes, there. Yes, and of the greatest range of sounds, many of them dissonant. Uh, which he just played out and they roared across the town and people used to wait and listen to him. For, some people were purists and they were very, very cross to have this sort of madman up there in the belt. But most people adored him and we recorded him and the music was quite sensational. Now, isn't that interesting, you see? You used the word dissonance, but people enjoyed it. People understood it. And the other thing with bells is that quite often one person can hear more of one pitch in a bell than someone else. So you'd say, sing that note, like Big Ben. That note. Yeah. Sometimes I can hear lots of other notes as well. Mm. And bells often disturb one's sense of... Pitch. And the other thing is, is that when you play them as he did, many, many of them at the same time, you can't stop a bell sounding. So the ring, the tone goes on, the great musical note of it goes on. That's right. Laissez vibrer is what we say when we want a bell to continue. Do you? Let vibrate. I want to ask you later on to choose an example of a nice interval. By that I don't mean a chord, I mean an interval, a gap between something and something. But before we do that, I want to go into different intervals. <laughs> I know this brings it down a little bit down more to earth than this. But in the middle of operas, they have an interval. So I'm talking particularly about things like country house operas, places like Glyndebourne and Grange Park Opera and The Grange and Garsington, 
extraordinary places like this where people go and they'll listen to one or two acts of the opera, then there will be a massive interval. And this interval is usually a supper break of some kind. And it's usually an hour and a quarter at least, isn't it? An hour and a half. Now, first of all, what is it like as a conductor when you're in the heat of a piece? Is it nice to stop and just not do anything? I mean, if I was doing a play and we had an hour and a half off in the middle of it, I think I'd... I'd be enraged because by that time you're telling the story. What do the musicians do? What do the performers do? Because they might quite often will be sitting there in big crunchy wigs or with very tight costumes on or something. What goes on? What do well, you do? What well, do I, know I, do? What you, yeah, I know what you do sometimes. What do I do? Well, okay, this is, a, let's say, Grange Park Opera where you conduct virtually every year and I come every year. This tell me, tell this, me, what is it? <laughs> this beautiful, beautiful little opera house built a little bit on the model of La Scala Milan in the grounds of the great late Bamba Gascoigne's house, West Horsley Park, which was given to him by his aunt and which in his 80s he hardly knew what to do with. And so when Wasfikani, the magician woman, came and said, do you think we can build an opera house in your grounds? She raised all the money herself. I think it was 10 million pounds or something. And the opera house was built within 11 months and was playing there. Yeah. So we go mm. down there and you're going to be conducting. This year you're doing Tristan and Isolde, but last year you did, what did you do? La Gioconda. La Gioconda. And you've been, you've been playing with Grange Park Opera for ages. In the intervals there, sometimes people bring, they either hire a tent and put, spread out their food on a table or they put out a carpet on the ground or a cloth on the ground and have picnics there. And sometimes the picnics are really elaborate. You, being the maestro, are not really wanting to tuck in hugely halfway through your show. Certainly not. Sometimes, I know this, we have gone with an umbrella, because it might be raining, and sat on a wall out of sight. And I have opened up some bought cheese sandwiches. <laughs> it's a bit tragic, but that's... And you don't drink, so you just have some sort of sad old bit of orange juice. And that's yep. our interval feast. Well, I think the thing is, it's fatal to lose the thread. So what you can't do is go off and watch a movie or watch an episode of some thriller. You can't really go off and dive into a, an engrossing book. You have to keep the thread of the piece alive. Do audiences lose the thread, perhaps? Do they? Do, well, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm always cross. I always want everything to go on without any intervals. I don't care if people can't go to the lavatory. They can jolly well come with huge pants. I just can't stand the idea <laughs> of having to stop things. Once I'm in it, I want it just to go on and on. Now, I realise people have to stop, change their clothes and things, so we can have, we can have a little break. And I think quarter of an hour in the theatre is heaps except they ought to sell drink in cans, which you can just get out of a machine. You shouldn't have to queue at the bar. And there have got to be masses of lavatories. So everybody, again, well, huge pants. I mean, you know, anyway, I'm not going to go. This is getting <laughs> stupid. But the thing is, to stop in the theatre for an hour and a half, as they used to, they used to, when George III came to the Haymarket, came to the Haymarket he had a dining room right at the top of the theatre where he would usually take the leading lady because he'd have a little bit of a dalliance, a little bit of a glitter in his eye. It might not be George III, it might be the George IV. I'm not sure. I'm not sure on my kings. But anyway, a kingly one would appear. And everybody would go, oh, how lovely. La, la, there goes the king. He's up there. And he'd tuck into quails and bottles of port and goodness knows what. Then feeling much, much better, he'd come downstairs. And the second act would start at 11 o'clock at night or something. Well, this doesn't strike me as a very good way of doing something. I would no. much rather have a shortish interval. And I might give people a cheese sandwich and just say, eat that and be grateful. Well, singers... In, in opera singers in, in, in one of those intervals find it quite difficult 
because they cannot get out of costume. I think we allow them to lose their wigs. <laughs> but then, of course, they They've need to be put back 10, on again. 15 minutes before the show begins to have their wigs on again. So very rarely do opera singers do anything except sit and keep oiling the voice, keep singing exercises, mm. because there's nothing worse than a break like that to make your voice go cold. Mm. And that's the same way that I feel with concentration. Mm. You know what I'm like in one of those intervals. I, I, after 40 minutes or so, I begin to tick because I'm, I'm thinking only of the next act. I can feel it. So, you know, as long as one can keep the thread... Musicians, however, the orchestra, very different. Coolio, they're outside, they're FaceTiming the kids. Hi, did you have your... Is that funny, Teddy? Yeah, I can see funny, Teddy. You go, really, really, really? Where's your heart, man? You go, no, because they don't have to do that. They generally eat their dinner, actually, like good musicians. They, they go and eat their dinner somewhere. Yeah. Because musicians always need to be fed. They're not like the rest of us who would be perfectly happy to sit around and have a rump of beef at 1am. <laughs> Stevie, so now we want to sign off the whole of this programme about intervals. Have you got something that you'd like to tell me about? Your favourite interval appears to be the sixth. You remember. Padi or para major and minor sixth. And I think we should go out on... That wonderful song, Where Do I Begin? been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and Ben Tullow, and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills, our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. The Perfect Year, written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and performed by Elaine Page. The publisher was The Really Useful Group and the record label was Rhino UK, a division of Warner Music UK Limited. Music of the Gothic Era. Notre Dame period, first movement. Villarant Omnes by Leonin, performed by David Munro, James Bowman, and the Early Music Consort of London. The record label was Deutsch Grammophon. The Way You Look Tonight, by Dorothy Fields and Jerome Kern, performed by Billie Holiday. The publisher was Universal Music Publishing and Shapiro Bernstein and Co. The record label was Sony BMG Music Entertainment. Bells of Novodovici Convent, performed by the choir of the Dormition Church of the Novodovici Convent. The record label was Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, 1989, Alvidis, UNESCO. Where do I begin? Love theme, 
from Love Story, written by Francis Lay and performed by Andy Williams. The publishers were Campbell, Connolly and Co., as well as Sony ATV Harmony UK, 2014 Sony Music Entertainment UK Limited. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.